welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Theory Pedagogy Talk. And our guest for our 30th episode now is none other than Dr. Rebecca Jemian. So Ben, tell us a little bit about Dr. Jemian. Sure. Rebecca Jemian is a faculty member at the University of Louisville School of Music. Her pedagogical activities include being a co-editor of the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy. She and her dog Dexter are a therapy team that visits facilities in the Louisville area. I think the best part was getting to cross the gap of high school and college to have a better understanding of what our incoming college students might know. And I've learned so much from the high school AP teachers. For the most part, AP music theory teachers don't teach music theory as a regular job. And that's really unlike AP English or AP Math or many of the other AP subjects. But these AP music theory teachers are band directors, they're choir directors, they're orchestra directors who add this course into their already full load. So hearing how they help students develop hearing eyes and seeing ears is just amazing. So today our very special guest is Rebecca Jemian. We're so happy to have you on the podcast and uh, kind of feel like we're in a little bit of rarefied air because we are getting to speak with a former AP Music Theory Chief Reader. So should we call you Chief? Do we call you Madam Chief? Uh, what, what do you prefer there? Oh, that is too <laughs> funny. So you could call me Grand Poobah and I'd be okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> or, or Rebecca. All right, all right, well, all right. So Grand Poobah Rebecca, tell us a little bit about kind of, um, we always like to ask our guests a little bit about their background and kind of how you got into to music theory and how you find it, found yourself, you know, at your place where you're at now. Oh, thanks. Um, so when I was a kid, I had played bassoon and I went to college for bassoon and got a degree, an undergraduate performance degree from Peabody. But along the way, I found myself curious about broader musical aspects, and I had always enjoyed helping my friends with our theory classes. I got a nudge from a former teacher that I might do well to pursue theory in grad school and look to combine bassoon and theory as a career. So I, I went down the road from where I think you all are. I went down to UT Austin and have a master's degree in theory from there, and then I went um, I still was riding the fence or walking the fence um, as a bassoonist and theorist, and I spent three years as a freelance bassoonist in Chicago. I was a member of the Chicago Civic Orchestra, and I played extra with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra on a few occasions. I had summers as a fellowship performer at the Aspen Music Festival, but it didn't seem like I was going to win a job at, in an orchestra, so I... Um, I still had that theory interest and I went and did doctoral work at Indiana University. And since then I had 13 years on the faculty at Ithaca College and I've been at U of L since 2013. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's great. It's 
It's so interesting. So many of our guests come in with some type of performance experience oftentimes or playing in a band or singing. Um, it's about making music that's, that gets people into it. And then they find themselves into theory, but it's always the playing that comes first, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Being a, a musician is fantastic. Sometimes I think so people true. think theory and performance are like polar opposite ends of like music study, but I see it the exact opposite way. I see that theory and performance are linked so closely um, that it definitely draws me in. Both both fields draw me in. I got my master's in performance on the trumpet and do a lot of gigging still today, and they're always connected. There's always something that when you go out to a gig that connects to theory, um, what we're doing in class, or even just, you know, reading a tune down a third or something like that, you know, um, when you're, when you're performing with a vocalist, for example, things like that, just relating all the time. They're by no means, in my opinion, opposites, but they're closely linked. Totally agree. So you've served as the AP Music Theory Chief Reader. I already established that fact. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit about like what that role is? Like, um, how you landed in that spot and and what what that what that person does sure i'd love to talk about that i occupied that position from july 2014 until june 2018 so it was a four-year job Um, the job of chief reader is to coordinate with college board who owns the ap course and exam coordinate with ets um, who develops and administers the ap exam and the reading Um, The main part of the job is to oversee that the seven-day reading of the nine free response questions on almost 20,000 tests goes smoothly and is completed on time. Um, As part of that, I'm involved with the selection of the, or I was involved with the selection of the AP teachers and the college faculty to do this reading. So the culmination are those seven days. That's a critical part of the job, Um, but every week. There are copious tasks to do. Um, It's important to work with the test development committee to ensure that the test is fair, comprehensive, and appropriate. And if I can, I'd like to say a couple of words about the best parts of that experience. I think the best part was getting to cross the gap of high school and college to have a better understanding of what our incoming college students might know And I've learned so much from the high school AP teachers. For the most part, AP music theory teachers don't teach music theory as a regular job. And that's really unlike AP English or AP math or many of the other AP subjects. But these AP music theory teachers are band directors, they're choir directors, they're orchestra directors who add this course into their already full load. So hearing how they help students develop hearing eyes, and seeing years is just amazing. During the time I was chief reader between 2014 and 2018, we moved away from having students send in cassettes for their sightseeing assignments. (laughs) Very progressive move right there, (laughs) I might add. (laughs) Yeah, so so during at the beginning of the time, cassettes and CDs were an option. And by the time I stopped, um, they were moving toward online digital submissions of the sightseeing examples. And a lot of my time was spent on those efforts. That's really great. I've graded the exam a couple of times, and I have found it really exactly what you said. I've learned so much from the colleagues that are teaching high school in that environment. 
um, have had so much fun going out to dinner with them and hearing about their teaching techniques and their students and things like that. And um, I've graded a number of parts of the exam while I've, I've done melodic dictation, harmonic dictation, sight singing, and then, of course, everybody's favorite, like the the melody harmonization, the big, you know, final question on there. Um, FR7, I think it is, uh, the big FR7 question. So I've done all those. Um, it's, you know, it's by no means an easy exam. A student who gets a five on that exam has demonstrated a lot of knowledge. And um, I think it's, the sight singing was especially fun. You feel like you get to meet the students because you're hearing their actual voice you're hearing their actual, you know, uh, the sound of them or sometimes not if they just are like, I can't do this. And then it's silent for two minutes or <laughs> however long. Um, but it's just and the, the experience of being a reader what has been really special. I have really loved doing that. It sounds when you're saying you're, you grade 20,000 exams. I remember doing that math one time. It was like doing the melodic dictation. And it's me and three other readers. And I thought, that means we're all grading 5,000 exams in seven days. And actually, it turns out to not be seven days because you get so fast at it that melodic dictation, we would always finish by the end of like day three or four. And then we get trained on another question and go grade something else. Um, so it's really an amazing experience. I'm assuming you started out as a, as a reader yourself and then kind of moved up from there. Jen, you're exactly right. And I so concur with everything you're saying about the experience. Yeah, I began as a reader. And over the a few years, I was able to get to read all the different questions that get graded. Um, it was really wonderful to broaden my thoughts about how assessment can work, how it can become more thorough and even evenly done. Um, I do love seeing colleagues at that setting, and it was possible to spend time more casually than you do at SMT or regional meetings. Um, so there are other levels of leadership before you get to chief reader, and I'm, I'm really not sure why I was tapped to go through them, because there are so many qualified people at the reading. Um, Janet Palumbo, who uh, led the AP Music Theory Division at ETS for many years, and just retired recently, said they look for three qualities in a chief reader, thorough knowledge of the subject matter, attention to detail on the level of a meticulous accountant, and interpersonal skills of a diplomat. I'm not convinced that I have all those qualities, but, <laughs> but there we are. You know, I think I was in the right place at the right time. Um, I settled into the more challenging sightseeing question, like you were saying, Jen. Um, many readers dread that question because you wear headphones all week long, and the student response is not displayed on a piece of paper, but rather has to be interpreted by the reader. There's a huge variety of student responses, as you were talking, as you were saying, Jen, you know, uh, the student who just says, oh, I can't do this, or tries and then can't really do it, to the student who's so confident that they meow their way through the, mm -hmm. through the example, <laughs> the meow, 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 you know, whatever it is. It's so, it, you never know what you're going to get when you start when you start in uh, response. Um, but it was really fun going through the training with my fellow readers so that we could score consistently and accurately. And gradually I got pushed up the ladder to chief reader designate and then chief reader. Um, and those also had some cool opportunities for learning. 
And you're doing that all the while you are still a full-time faculty member, right? And so how do you balance those two areas? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I don't know if you'll include this on the podcast. But so so I became chief reader designate just a few months before I, before I won the position at Louisville. And the position at Louisville was... Um, assistant, incoming assistant professor, starting again on the tenure track. Um, and and so it was really, really hard. Um, it was really hard. How did I balance it? Um, my husband did all did all the all the work at home. He always does the the cooking and the cocktails and he did all of the work. Good luck with that folks. <laughs> Uh, that's as as you kind of talk about that, and we've talked with other. Uh, we, we just this will come out after our conversation with Jan Miyaki, and she also talked about the challenge of balancing service and with you know in your uh, position at the school and you know being on the tenure track and having those obligations as well. And it's a really really big challenge to balance those two. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was amazing because chief reader usually goes to you know a very experienced person in the career, um, and the opportunity at Louisville came up, and I really couldn't couldn't avoid it because I mean Ben, I don't know if you know this, but my husband is in Louisville and I was in Ithaca, so we were commuting. I had to join him, you know, no question. Yeah, it was really challenging for those years because you're. I felt exalted in some way. I felt like a, I felt like a grand poobah, but I also felt like a lowly, you know, incoming fre- incoming freshman faculty member. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you were my chief reader. Um, at least one of the years that I that I did AP. And I, I've always been so impressed. The chief readers make their way around to everyone multiple times. So when you're reading the exam, the chief reader, you know, is going to stop by various times and just say hello to everyone in the room, maybe kind of glance over your shoulder as you're grading something, give you a good job sticker. <laughs> it's a, you need those diplomatic skills for sure. You keep everyone going when they're in hour seven of a long day of uh, grading things. Oh, Jen, you were a great reader um, when oh, I was there. I remember that. And it's so fun to get to know all the, the readers. That's one of the treats of that position. Yeah, it really is. It's very fun. So are there some things that the AP music theory exam does really well that you wish that more college folks knew about? You know, that is such a great question. There's a lot of talk about AP music theory having a philosophy of teaching to the test. You know, that the test is uh, all the AP music theory teachers do is get people ready for the test. I think that's true, but I don't think it's a bad thing here because the AP exam gives students many ways to show what they know. It's a test that's designed to assess basic knowledge and very advanced knowledge. And one thing I love about it that I don't think enough people realize is that it places more weight on oral skills than on non-aural skills. So that's fantastic. But as one focused answer to your question, I'd love to see college instruction use more sets of questions about a particular excerpt. A lot of our college courses focus most of the attention on harmonic topics, and we lose sight about the totality of the musical experience. 
the multiple choice part of the AP music theory exam. And that's something that we don't ever see in the week long mm-hmm. part of the reading. But the, the multiple choice que- part includes several sets of questions, each set based on a given excerpt of music from a different style period. And some of these question sets are oral, others are based on a score excerpt. And they're typical, typically four to six questions per set. They cover many different topics. So it's a terrific way to have students thinking about music theory in a more comprehensive way. Now, if I remember correctly, I took the AP Music Theory exam approximately 18 years ago. So you can, those of you that are calculating quickly, yes, you can figure out how old I am now. It's out there for all the listeners. But I remember there being questions even on timbre, for example, answering, you know, what in- particular instrument group do you hear um, in this section of an excerpt or and doing that as a multiple question, multiple choice question. So even, as you say, on the written portion, you're assessing things like timbre, you're assessing things like oral skills, even though quote unquote, that's the written test, you know, multiple choice written test. Um, I think that's a real strength, like you said, for the, for the AP test. If it's still there 18 years later, I humbly ask if it is. <laughs> so Ben, I think I remember reading your, your exam. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you were, you know, the calligraphy was impeccable. No, I'm kidding. You got the wrong guy. That was true. <laughs> so I, I do want to make sure to say that the exams are always read anonymously unless somebody has a way to to know the code. We never see names. So that was a joke. But um, yeah, the exam is still pretty, it's still the same thing. And I would, I think I would like to clarify that that multiple choice wasn't entirely written because there are all portions of that. Yeah, exactly. So we have a number of listeners who uh, teach AP theory. We've had Akira Sato on, who teaches AP theory uh, down here in the, the DFW. One of the one of I think the few folks who teach exclusively AP theory at, at the high school level, at least. Um, and so, what would you you know say to the the listeners who are teaching AP theory, um, maybe as advice or encouragement, uh, particularly maybe in light of the fact that that might not be their only thing. You mentioned that many of them are choir directors, band directors, orchestra directors, and so they're balancing these different things. What type of kind of advice or um, kind of things you would, you'd, you'd say to those folks? Oh, Paul, thanks for asking me about that. And um, yeah, Akira is just amazing. Uh, I'm afraid to mention one name when I wouldn't mention everybody who's also amazing, but Akira does occupy a very special place um, in AP music theory, along with his colleague um, at another of the Plano mm-hmm. schools, um, Brandon Pedigo. They're, they're just terrific. So my message to AP teachers would be that I have so much respect for all of you. I, uh, you, you do amazing jobs. I love that you're preparing our music students And you're also preparing all those non-music students who are gonna profit forever from knowing about music theory. My last message to you wonderful AP music theory teachers is to encourage you to participate in the reading. It's It's a profound way to develop professionally, not only as a teacher of AP music theory, but of understanding music more thoroughly. Those are my messages, yeah. 
And how does one go about being a reader? I mean, Jen gave a pretty uh, uh, raving review about it. I mean, it sounds, I mean, kind of sounds fun, you know, hanging out with theorists for seven days in the city. Um, and uh, you get you get meals afterwards after grading for eight hours a day. Uh, so how does one kind of, if one, someone is interested in, in doing that, whether they're an AP theory teacher or, you know, uh, they teach at the college level as well? Gosh, you know, I didn't review what the website is, but if you get on an internet search browser, uh, internet search engine, you can just type in how to become an AP reader, and it'll take you to the website, so you can find that. Yeah, I know the last couple of years that they've been actually virtual because of COVID. Of course, um, is there a hope or a plan to go back to face-to-face grading? Or uh, are we now in the land of Zoom forever, perhaps? (laughs) You know, that's a great question. And I'm not in the know like I was, but I did participate in the online reading this past summer. And the word was that they're planning to always incorporate some aspect of online, but they're planning that music will be back in person. I don't know if it'll be entirely in person, but, but... because again, I'm not in the know anymore, but I think they they value that music really benefits from being in person. Yeah, I think that's true. That's one of the big advantages to to doing it is is that you do get paid as well. So if you're out there wondering, like, do you just go do this for funsies? <laughs> uh, you do you do get paid, and if you go face to face, they also pay for your hotel, your travel, your meals. Um, they even give you one meal where they reimburse you and you can go out to eat wherever you want. I think they reimburse you up to like $25 or something. So um, <laughs> it's great. It's a it's a really fun. I mean, it sounds funny to say that to say I was grading for seven days and I had so much fun. But it's really true. It's really true. And it's really a commitment of more like nine days because you travel in before you start to read and then you travel out the day after you finish. And you do a musical on the last night. <laughs> It's a blast. Each question does a mute their own musical number. It's a lot of fun. Oh, man. I got to see some of those. <laughs> oh, they're hilarious. So, Jen, do you remember yours? What, what was yours, Jen? Oh, there have been several. Um, oh. We did something from Hamilton my last year. Um, our number. It, and there, it's always, like, jokes about things that were problems on the test that year. So um, maybe there was a particular question where the students all, you know, wrote 364 or something, you know, something that we would tell them never, ever to do. Three should not be inverted, right? And so then the song, the whole song will be about, like, not another 364. I mean, it's you have to be a theory nerd to love it, but it's really great. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. You're speaking the truth, Jen. You're telling it like it is. Yeah, it's really fun. It's really nerdy. Super nerdy. <laughs> so yep. nerdy, but it's, yep. it's very fun. Yeah really good nerdy in the best of ways well i have not been an ap reader so one question that i have is you know for those of us out there teaching college theory um what should we know about the ap test um since we don't have a lot of experience with the ap exam i haven't graded it you know I don't really know, besides 18 years ago, myself taking it. That's the last reference I have for the AP Music Theory exam. What should we know going forward in our core teaching about the exam? Ben, that's a great question, too. Um, my, the, 
first two thoughts that come to mind are one, learn more about the exam. Although, you know, I, I realize that there's a generation of, of theory professors who took the exam, so you're, you're one of many. But I'd say learn more about the exam, and there's a lot more to it than just those nine FR questions that college professors get to grade in the summers. That multiple choice section is really robust, and the other was consider, my other bit of advice is consider becoming a reader. Um, yeah, and that's, that's my main advice. My third, my third bit of advice or word on this is that, you know, there's so much changing in our music theory world, and you are, you note doctors are getting to that. You know, you're really trying to uncover and present that. So that's really important. And the AP music theory test is, is solid. It's been tested. It's, it, it's a good product. But it does have a lot of emphasis on 18th century writing. And I wonder if over, you know, I don't know how quickly they'll change things, but I wonder if if that'll be a a place for change. And the way to do that, part of that would be that college professors will be saying, we'll be discussing the relevance of the test to what, what happens in our curricula. I wonder, like, if you could think of maybe the thing that that test or AP theory the class does the best of, of kind of any of the topics it teaches or any of the skills perhaps that it develops and maybe you could give one change that you you would make if you had if you were really the grand pumba of it all and could change you know one thing about the AP course or the the exam what what would that be so what do you think it does the very best and what is one thing that you would change I think one thing it really does well is develop students' ears. Mm-hmm. There's so much focus on hearing and uh, and oral skills, so sightseeing and hearing. I think that's just terrific, and it's also, it reaches beyond harmony, mm-hmm. which I think is terrific. If I could change one thing about it, I might suggest that they put more emphasis right now on chord symbols start doing a little bit more with chord symbols, but there I am back talking about harmony. Hmm. <laughs> it's hard to go back. And to, to yeah. think we, um, uh, my pedagogy, I have a graduate pedagogy class I teach in the falls and fall, and we were talking about textbooks. And so I brought in all these textbooks I had in my office, and it's just funny to look at all the titles. Be like, oh, this one's just called Harmony. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and this one is also tonal harmony and um and of course it's very important to music but um just be just by virtue of the titles you see how kind of important it is and how hard it is to kind of think outside of the box uh beyond just the kind of the harmonic framework or how harmony works in music our whole field kind of comes out of that, you know? It's like all the people who made a name for themselves, they wrote a harmony lira, right? Like, that's <laughs> that's how you get started, <laughs> is you write, like, a new idea about harmony. So we have, there's a long tradition that we're trying to shift away from or being more inclusive, you know, at the end of a very long tradition of doing it a different way. So it's going to take time. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. kind of a bit paradoxical in some ways because I had gone through a bunch of meetings with some of our jazz faculty and we're going through this integration we're integrating jazz into the core theory classes and you know as i go as i went through all these jazz 
theory-oriented books, you know. Mm-hmm. In other words, not titled Harmony, but enti- entitled Jazz mm-hmm. Theory, right, or Jazz mm-hmm. Fundamentals. They have harmony throughout as well. You know, I mean, the notation mm-hmm. is different, right? The, it's, it's lead sheet symbols and all kinds of different notations and extensions, you know, and modifications to dominant seven. And I went back, you know, in some of the meetings to the jazz band, I said, I'm really trying to, like, take harmony for what it is and do that well. But I don't want to spend so much time on harmony. I want to integrate jazz theory. I want to integrate what's in these wonderful textbooks. But I also don't want to wind up talking more and more about harmony, you know, in, in the classes. So it's hard. Yet I do want to integrate jazz, right? I want to have, I want to do both. Um, but that's one thing that I, that I've, just been conflicted about, I guess, over, over the last couple of weeks, especially. So tell us about uh, your university. What kind of music majors do you offer? Who are your students? What are they up to? What's it like to teach there? Oh, thanks. Um, the University of Louisville is a public metropolitan university in Kentucky. And one of our distinctions is that we're recognized as one of the few institutions to have both a Carnegie Research designation as well as another designation for Carnegie Community Engagement. Mm. The School of Music is one of the smaller units here, but I heard our provost just this week describe it as one of the jewels Mm. because of our internationally recognized choir, our commitment to new music and our community outreach. We offer bachelor's and master's degrees, no doctorate, Um, And the degrees are in education, performance, music therapy, jazz, composition, conducting, new media, and probably some I'm not remembering. And I would describe our students as resilient, talented, smart, and caring. Sounds like a good crowd. It does. (laughs) Aren't we all so lucky to be with good crowds? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very much Mm -hmm. so. Very much so. So what's something that you've been doing in your curriculum um, this year that might be new? Uh, I guess we could also ask the question of, are you face-to-face? Have you been virtual? You know, we're all kind of in these very different modalities. Um, uh, and I, I wonder how, how that has been the, maybe the past, you know, two years, I guess, now we're going on. We are, aren't we? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to answer your question in a in two parts. So the new thing I've been doing in my curriculum this year is that I'm asking my sophomores to answer a weekly journal prompt. Um, Our sophomore, well, our theory curriculum, our core curriculum is blended. So we see the students five hours a week over four days. It's a lot of time together. So I'm doing a weekly journal prompt and sometimes it's a content related question. It gives them a chance to summarize what what's going on with theory it kind of they can also synthesize their their experience today's prompt is for each student to describe their own student-oriented superpower and tell how that superpower relates to sophomore theory i'm hoping they'll have fun with it a little bit of fun they we've just finished midterms like everybody else has and i i think they're a little um low in spirit Mm -hmm. right now and i'm hoping to boost them up a bit. But your other question about online and what we've done is that last year, the academic year 2021, we taught all core theory courses online. They were synchronous, um, but all online. And it was a challenge to keep students involved. 
we didn't all require that they would um, leave their cameras on. So there were a lot of times, you know, you wouldn't see people at all. Um, and we lost things like student buy-in to sight singing. You know, and that's, that's a hard thing to get buy-in on <laughs> anyway. So, so there we were losing it. But um, my theory colleagues are, are all amazing. We were all named as student champions during the year for, because we were reaching out to our students, keeping them involved. So we started back in the classroom at the beginning of academic year 21. Back in August, we all came back to the classroom. All people in the School of Music, students, faculty, staff, audience members even, are required to be vaccinated or have an approved exemption. We wear masks inside the building. We space three feet apart when we're singing. And we're all really happy. We're, we're happy to be together, happy to learn in a way that's a little more familiar and that we feel has opportunities for us. There are ch challenges a lot based on what didn't happen last year. Mm -hmm. You know, so so with my sophomores, I'm coaxing them into sightseeing, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to lay out breadcrumbs that they will eagerly pick up. So maybe they're donut crumbs, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's better than me, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, well, I was completely online last year as well, and I'm teaching Arl Skills 3 and this semester and it was we were getting ready for our first sightseeing exam and and they're like wait we're gonna be doing it in your office in person and i'd realized like they had never done a dictation exam or a sightseeing exam in person because they had spent their entire freshman year on online and so you know being able to having to sit in a room with everyone else and listen and singing in front you know face to face was just this new experience and i was kind of kind of thrown off by that because i was like wow you folks have really missed almost like a really integral part of music training is that that face-to-face -face experience and i'm like wow that's that's surprising for sure and that's a that's hard to jump in like rl3 that's your first time singing a sight singing test you know you're doing chromatic mm -hmm. stuff and you know all sorts of yeah. things like that and that's your first time mm -hmm. with your teacher right there in the room that would be that would be hard that would be a hard transition. Yeah, they were they were a little apprehensive uh, about it. Although I will say, I gave my students last year. We were back face to face, but um, oral skills met in a room that was large enough where they could sing, and so um, I gave them the option of doing Zoom final exams or face to face final exams, and they unanimously chose face to face. They wanted to be in the same room, and. Um, so we, you know, they sang behind like a little plexiglass wall and we all wore masks and all those things. But I mean, there's so much you can evaluate so much better face to face than you can on Zoom as well. And you don't run into things like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to need you to sing that again because it was breaking up the whole time where you froze. You know, <laughs> you don't run into yes. those issues. So I think that could have impacted their choice to be face to face as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that prompt. I love that. What's your superhero? Yeah. That's your superhero quality oh, yeah. because it's, yeah, I love that. You know, I've been hearing so many, so many people talk about their superpowers in other contexts, and it just kind of dawned on me that it could work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Are there are there some other prompts you can think of that you've given them across the semester? Like, what kinds of things do you ask for them to reflect on in the in the journal entries? But some of my other prompts this year have been to 
summarize binary form or talk about the modal scale degrees. And there, every few weeks, I want, I want them to, <clears throat> to reflect on what they're doing and how they're doing in class. So I'll ask them to assess where their strengths are, where their weaknesses are, and to state what they plan to do to improve. I love that so much because in theory and oral skills, it's just one mountain range to cover after another, right? And so it's this constant climb and uh, it's it's so often just easy just to forget about the self-assessment or checking in where the student's at because it's just like, all right, let's get your backpack on. We're going over this mountain now. It's never like, well, how was that? You know, what? where did you struggle? And um, can you talk a little bit more about that kind of having your students self-assess? Because I think that's something that is really valuable, but we oftentimes forget about it or don't leave time in the class classroom uh, to, to do that. You know, I haven't made it, a, I haven't made a study of the best practices of self-assessment. I'm pretty much just inviting them to do it on their own. So I think some are, some look more deeply than others do. And it would be good if I would come up with better strategies for it, I'm sure. Um, I've got a special group of students. We assess our students when they start the theory curriculum as freshmen, and we group them. And they go through the courses, the curriculum, in, that, in the grouping. And I've got sophomores who are the, who are the least prepared. And, and the range of, of needs that they have is so wide. You know, some still have trouble matching pitch, and some never learned to say C sharp if if the sharp's in the key signature, but it's not on the. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, which also really affects them when they try to spell triads, or identify them. So, it's really hard when they're sophomores to get through each of those individual problems and try and help them. You know, build build in the remediation that they need Mm -hmm. so I'm hoping you know that I just reach out to them connect with them as people help to show them what they could be learning yeah I think it's it's changing that narrative and allowing them to see that that they have potential and it's not shaming them obviously we have standards and they have to be able to meet those standards but inviting them into it rather than kind of just making them feel bad about it because they they already do and and oftentimes with those students as you mentioned those are they're at the, they're at the bottom i mean they know they're at the bottom they right. can see their peers having a lot easier time so they don't need to be told that you know you're you're really poor at this they already know that by just viewing you know their peers and um so finding ways to encourage them and bring them up and to show them hey you know i have I have so many students that I've had that were in your same shoes, but are now successful musicians or successful teachers, music therapists, what have you. And just because you're struggling at this, at this thing, that does not determine your future success. I like too, that it reminds them of their responsibility in it. What are you going to do to improve in this area? Because sometimes uh, one of the hardest transitions for students coming out of high school is a feeling of like, it's my teacher's job for me to do well. Instead of like, it's my job for me to do well. And, you know, my teacher's here to facilitate and to help and to encourage and, you know, all of those things. But if I don't do 
my part of it if I don't take kind of ownership of my own learning. I'm not going to get where I could get otherwise. So I really, I love, I love that element of self-assessment. I think that's important. Thanks. Yeah, that was one of the things I'm noticing my students saying is that last year being online, it was hard for them to learn. And for some of them, it was really hard for them to learn. And they'll say that that there was so much, that the teachers gave them so much. Their teachers last year, you know, would would spend time going over the material for an audit and lots of time. And I'm I don't do that, and I've forgotten that we might have done a little bit more of that last mm-hmm. year than we did. So, so I'm trying to find ways to, for them to comfortably take on the learning on their own. It's mm-hmm. yeah. great. Yeah, I would even argue that self-assessment, ultimately, in terms of just career pathways, could be more important than anything you know we're just giving them in general, because ultimately. We're not going to be there <laughs> with them for the rest of their lives. You know, it's kind of up to them to reflect, like, how did that lesson go with my band today? You know, or how did that lesson go with my choir? And what are my strengths and weaknesses? Because when I go to Texas Music Educators Association or whatever it is, you know, I want to go to the sessions that are really going to improve my, you know, uh, professional, uh, what do you gosh, my professional development. There it is. That's the word I was looking for, professional <laughs> development. Not going to sessions that things that are already your strengths, right? But going to sessions that are really targeted to your weaknesses and then taking that back to your, your school and saying, yeah, now I can really glean something from this session, you know? And that's a really part of self-reflective practice. Yeah, I bumped into a student the other day who is student teaching right now, a music ed major who's student teaching, who was saying, oh, you know, I I just I want to do well and I'm getting, you know, this feedback and and sometimes I think, oh, well, why didn't I think to do that? And then I, you know, and I said, "Okay, first of all, be grateful for the feedback because I'm still giving I'm having to give myself feedback (laughs) this many years into teaching I've been you know I started teaching oral skills one at like 23 years old it's been a while now that I've been teaching it and I'm still every time like what can I do differently next time what can I improve on what didn't work for this group of students why didn't it work and this student said you're still doing that and I was like of course of course you're always gonna be you know improving and working on it it's a skill that you improve across a whole lifetime of being a teacher it's not something that you get right during student teaching and then it's like locked down for life you know so and he's (laughs) like okay well that helps me and i'm like well good i hope so you know well this has been super fun to chat with you rebecca and to kind of get a little kind of behind the curtain view of kind of AP theory and and how that kind of works and uh, just the wonderful instruction and service that provides students you know, at that high school level and then preparing them to you know be successful in in college in college music or at the very minimum create more educated audience members right <laughs> and that's, absolutely you know, it doesn't matter if if they go to study music um, we want people that are paying tickets to so, go see concerts and things like that and 
having their kids in ensembles and stuff like that. So building that love of music. So we thought we'd wrap up with some rapid fire questions. All right, so these are just kind of off the cuff questions that we come up with. We don't even know what we're going to ask each other. We don't, we don't discuss, discuss this. So um, I actually have two. Uh, we're usually only allowed one. Um, the, the first one is non-musical. Uh, it is, what is your husband's best cocktail? And while you're thinking about it, I have to, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this, is that um, her husband is great on Facebook and he posts almost, almost daily, maybe every other day, the cocktail of the day or like uh, that cocktail hour and and so there's always two glasses for him and, and rebecca and then usually their adorable dog dexter is like looking up sadly what happened um, <laughs> that's the shot that's the shot if we had video you would be able to see it so um what's what's uh what's mark's very best cocktail that he makes you know, all of his cocktails are wonderful. Oh, there's Dexter. <laughs> They're all wonderful, but I love the ones that he does um, with ginger, some sort of a ginger mm-hmm. liqueur. And he's very careful with the flags that he garnishes them with. Uh-huh. So, Well, they look delicious, and so I, I love it. So that, that was my non-musical one. My musical rapid-fire question um, is um, kind of thinking about yourself when you were a, a beginning, you know, music student what would have been one area of the ap theory exam or content that you would have struggled with the most harmonic listening mm-hmm. yeah hearing occasionally there will be a question you know they'll play an excerpt from a beginning of a string quartet or something and they'll they'll give five different chord progressions and it'll be like oh what is that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. just to hear that i think that'd yeah. be it all right, Jen or Ben? Ben, do you go? Either way, I was my rapid fire today was going to be: What's your favorite way to begin class? Great question. After saying hello, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I often do something where, um, with my sophomores, I'm I'm playing a, a pitch pattern and having them sing it back on law and then solfege just to get the mind going Mm -hmm. that's great i love that activity it's fantastic yeah uh so my question is favorite ap uh free response question to grade wow great question you know this summer because i know them all i really know them all i know them all um, so this summer I was assigned to grade FR7, that's the mm-hmm. melody harmonization one, and that's a challenging mm-hmm. one, and everybody thinks that's the hardest question. Everybody says, oh, that's it, but they're wrong. Sight singing too is harder to grade because, because you, that, you don't have something to look at as you're reading it. You have to do it through your head. And um, we finished our FR7 question early enough that we were assigned to something else, and I was assigned to sight singing too. It was like, I'm home. Yes, I'm home. Because I know how, to, I really know how to, how to listen to that. And my table leader who was, you know, monitoring what we were doing had never read sight singing. And I know that he was hoping to say, you know, Rebecca, why don't you 
why don't you think about giving the student this point? And I was like, nope. I know more than he does on this one. So it felt kind of good. I'm not naming him. I'm not saying who that's he right, is, but right. we all know him. Right. That is a part of the process. That's... Your table leader will will tell you if you have done something. Like, they backread you. So they're they're looking over your exams to make sure that you have done it correctly. And if they see something that you're doing consistently wrong, they'll come have a chat with you about it. <laughs> so, And the reason for that is that we want students to get mm-hmm. every point to which they're entitled. We want to do candidate-oriented scoring and show them how much they've learned. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So as we wrap up, maybe just let us know and let the listeners know kind of where they can where they can find you online or where or where you're at and and also kind of what projects you have going on right now i mean you're not um you don't have the all the obligations with ap music theory so maybe you're able to put those efforts into something different oh they can find me at the university of louisville so that's the best place to reach me and i'm joyfully co-editing the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy with David Thurmeyer of the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and having a great time learning more about how we can expand our our curricula, our, the topics we're teaching, the ways we're thinking about music theory, decentering, mm-hmm. decentering what we've do- been doing, and looking for ways to be more equitable and inclusive. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We will be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.